If you haven't already, please take in your Bible, take your Bibles and or your smart device, however you're doing that these days, and turn over to John chapter four. John chapter four. Um, so I grew up in a small town in West Tennessee, which means that I'm a redneck through and through. And you can judge me however you see fit, but I know where all you are from also. So there's that. Um, it has nothing to do with John 4. But, you know, in a small town, one's reputation kind of goes before them. And in a small town, people are not afraid to talk about you behind your back, right? We all know that. I bet that's happened in Hendersonville once or twice. And um, so in my small town, you never wanted to be that guy or that woman, or that lady, because that meant that you had done something that deeply offended the social mores of the town, right? That meant that you had just ruined someone's family, or destroyed someone's yard, or wrecked someone's car, or broken some law that you ought not break, but you became that guy. You became that woman. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? We never have the guts here in the South to say it to your face. We would say, bless your heart. But behind your back, you are that guy or that woman. So in John 4, there are many ways that we could look at truth in this passage. For example, this is the first place in the Gospel of John where Jesus claims the name Messiah or Christ for himself. And so we could look at the passage from that perspective. In this passage is a section about the nature of what worship really is that could captivate and shape and form us. But I think in the flow of John's gospel this morning, what we need to see most clearly is the person that Jesus goes out of his way to reveal himself to. Jesus goes out of his way to make sure that that woman in that town that everybody talked about knew that he was the Messiah and that he could make her into a true worshiper that was acceptable in God's sight. And then at the end of the chapter, Jesus is going to reveal himself by healing the son of a Roman Gentile pagan and making sure that that guy in that town knew that he was the Messiah. And so what I want us to see this morning indeed is what we've seen all throughout the gospel of John, that Jesus indeed is the only hope. Jesus indeed is the only savior. Jesus indeed is the only one who can redeem, who can reconcile to God, who can make sinners accepted saints, who can bring those who are far off near. But notice to whom Jesus is revealing this, to that woman and to that man to those whom we would judge in our own flesh, those whom we would say are too far gone in our own flesh, those whom we would rather see hurt and perish than have to humble ourselves and befriend and draw near to them. What we see in this passage is Jesus going out of his way to speak the gospel to that woman. And Jesus going out of his way to speak the gospel to that man. So then, 
I'm going to talk, if you're new here today, I'm going to talk for about 35 minutes. You chuckle because you know that means 40, okay? But I'm going to talk for about 35 minutes. But here, here's the point. In this passage, there's really two things to remember. Jesus is the only hope for sinners. And no sinner is too far gone for the blood of Jesus to redeem and to restore and to make new. And what this passage does in vivid, vivid color is makes this truth very clear. So let's look at it together because I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see it in the passage. So we're told that Jesus is going from Jerusalem, Judea, and heading back to Galilee. And to get there, we're told that he has to go through Samaria. So it's kind of like this. You're going to leave Hendersonville, and you're going to go to downtown Nashville. To get there, that means you have to go through East Nashville. There's just no way around it. Actually, there is. You could go all the way to Gallatin, cross over 109 Bridge, go all the way to I-40, and go into town that way. So Jesus had another solution. But Jesus chose to go through East Nashville and make sure to speak to that woman in East Nashville. And, And in this case, that's Samaria. And so I think what's really important for us to notice in this passage is that John, who wrote this gospel, wanted us to know that Jesus was taking the initiative here. Jesus was taking the initiative to engage that woman with the truth of who he was. So first point for my note-taking friends is an encounter with that woman. An encounter with that woman. So we're told that he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. In verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. And when he got into Samaria, there was, Jacob, there was a well there known as Jacob's Well, which means it was an important place in the story of God's faithfulness to the children of Israel. And he sat, Jesus chose to sit beside the well at the sixth hour. And then verse 7, a woman from Samaria comes to draw water from the well, and Jesus initiates the conversation by saying to her, give me a drink. Now, from this point right here, if the story stopped here, we could say this was just a story of circumstance whereby Jesus needed a place to stop and was a little bit thirsty and didn't have any way to get water, and so he asked for a drink. So the woman says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, right there at the end of verse 9, Jesus could have said, woman, because I'm thirsty and I need some water. Right? And so if the point of this story was Jesus was thirsty and he got some water from a nice woman in Samaria, we could be done right there. But notice what Jesus does in verse 10. He digs in. He makes sure to engage her. He makes sure that this encounter is not a happenstance story about Jesus being thirsty and a woman who happened to figure out who he was. He was intent to reveal himself to her. Verse 10, so Jesus answered, 
If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living, living water. Now we're just going to pause there. So at this point, we're now in a conversation. We're now in a theological conversation about truth and water and satisfaction and eternal life. And who took it there? Jesus did. With whom did he take it there? This particular Samaritan woman. Do you guys see that in the passage? Jesus is the initiator of this encounter. And that is of so much importance for what we see. Because this encounter with this Samaritan woman was triply uncommon. It was triply unexpected. So there are three reasons why this encounter with that woman would not have happened if Jesus wasn't intent on revealing his saving grace to this woman. Number one, Jews did not commune with Samaritans. Jews did not commune with Samaritans. We're told in verse 10 that the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as the worst of traitors. So first of all, they were half-breeds. They were like half-Jew and half-Gentile. But not only were they half-breeds, they were sell-out half-breeds because they had chosen to worship the other gods. They had chosen not just to worship the one true God, but the other gods. And not only that, but as we're told in this passage, they chose to set up their own temple and presume that God would be revealed in a place other than where God had revealed that he would be revealed. The Jews hated the Samaritans. And they were not only hated, but they were unclean. Perpetually. They were half-breeds. They rejected much of the Hebrew scripture. They built an alternate temple. They set up. Then their alternate temple was destroyed and they chose not to continue to worship in Jerusalem. There is no way that a Jew of this time would willingly commune with a Samaritan. And cleanliness was a big deal. There's certainly no way that a Jew would have asked, initiated, to share a cup, to share a drawing jar with a Samaritan. There is no way because it would make one unclean. So there was an ethnic religious line that made Jesus speaking to and initiating contact with this woman highly unexpected. Second, Jews most certainly did not commune with Samaritan women. Jews most certainly did not commune with Samaritan women. So in general, men did not discuss theology with women. This conversation is about theology. There is evidence that Jewish leaders at this time viewed Samaritan women as perpetually 
unclean, meaning there is no acceptable time for a Jewish man to engage with a Samaritan woman. None whatsoever. So it is highly unexpected that you would see a man, a Jewish man, sitting around a well speaking with a Samaritan woman. Third, Jews certainly did not commune with unholy Samaritan women. Now, I know if you were a Jew at that time, the the phrase unholy wouldn't be necessary because all Samaritan women were unholy, but particularly bold and brash, sinful Samaritan women. This woman is nothing short of unrepentantly immoral. We're told in verses 17 and 18 that she's had five husbands. We're told that she's now living with another man. The record is not fully clear, but it is clear that her marital fidelity is not holy. It is clear that her marital relationships are unfaithful. It is clear that her sexuality is impure through and through, and she doesn't dispute it. Now, I'm not going on and on and on to denigrate this woman, but I'm going on and on and on to build the case of why the disciples, when they came back from going to get food, would have never expected to see Jesus sitting by the well talking to this particular woman. So why was Jesus talking to this particular woman? Because he is offering her the gift of being made an acceptable worshiper before God. Jesus is revealing himself to this sinfully sinful, hopelessly hopeless, dirtiest of dirty woman saying, in me you can find streams of life. In me you can be made an acceptable worshiper before God. He takes it there. He makes the offer. Verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, I would love to have this water. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? Jesus says, listen, this well will satisfy you for a moment, but I offer you something that satisfies forever. And the woman says, sir, give me this living water that will satisfy forever. And so Jesus, in verse 16, speaks directly to her sin, to her rebellion, and to where she needs to receive his mercy the most. And he says, go call your husband. He's gone to the very heart of the matter. Go call your husband. That's in verse 16. Now friends, this is where Two popular visions of Jesus separate, and we need to bring them back together. One popular vision of Jesus is the judge not lest you be judged vision of Jesus. 
This idea that, that he doesn't really care about people's sin and that he just came to show love to everybody and not draw lines in the sand and all that, right? And then over here, there's the get yourself right so you can come to Jesus vision of Jesus. And in this story, Jesus breaks both of those down and he says, I came to save and free from the bondage of sin the most sinful people. But when I save and when I free, I deal with the problem. Do you see that there? Jesus didn't just say, here, take the water. But he said, let me address what you're ashamed of the most. Let me address where you're the most sinful. Let me address where you're the most broken. And I will heal you there. I will forgive you there. I will restore you there. But I can't heal you and I can't forgive you and I can't restore you until we deal with the greatest problem that you have. Her problem was her heart. Her problem was her rebellion. Her problem was her sinfulness. And Jesus dealt with it. He says in verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So hear this. Jesus has offered her the gift of God, the living water where she will never be thirsty again, a spring of water welling up to eternal life, and he has offered to make her an acceptable worshiper of God. Jesus has done this, which means he's going to speak to her through her sin and through her rebellion and redeem her from there, but he redeems her from there. So before we go any farther, Let's pause and let's look at this. We are being told right here in John chapter 4 that the work of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus, the salvation of Jesus extends to places that no one in this world would have ever conceived or perceived or imagined. It goes to the lowest of the low, the worst of the worst, the broken of the broken, and says, come and have life. So Jesus went to the hard places, to the hard people, to the hard scenario, and said, come have life in me. And just so we don't get too puffy here, if we read our status apart from Christ in the, the lens of the totality of the scripture, guess what? We're that man and we're that woman. Jesus has no business sitting at the well with us according to the understanding of the times. 
Jesus has no business drinking water with us. Jesus has no business talking with us. Jesus has no business communing with us. And yet he came to do just that so that we could be met in our sin, healed from it, and made right with God such that we can worship him in spirit and in truth and be acceptable in his sight. That, my friends, is the gospel. And if Jesus came to to extend and to reach that far and to pour out such compassion, what does he want from us? He wants us to receive it. He wants us to extend it to others. And he wants us to live for the glory of his great name. So the first point in this passage is an unexpected encounter with that woman. The second point is following Jesus as he extends mercy. Following Jesus as he extends mercy. Now, what happens in verses 27 and following is two things. The disciples come back, and they're like, hey, Jesus, what's going on? And then the woman goes back to town And she starts talking about this encounter that she's had with Jesus. And those two things work together for many to enter the kingdom. So first, the woman, we're told in verse 28 and 29 that she went back to town and she said, come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Now this woman has a reputation People know what she's been up to, but they only know the half of it. And and that in and of itself is enough to cause people to stop and go, hold on. We need to go and listen to this man. She says he could be the Christ. And so many came to him. And we're told many came to him, spent time with him, heard from him, And after two days, we're told that many believed not just because of what the woman said, but they believed, verse 42, for they have heard for themselves, and indeed, this is the Savior of the world. So through this woman, that woman who received the mercy of God, many were brought to Christ, and many believed, and many accepted his salvation, and many joined his kingdom. I don't think I'm reading too much into the scripture to say that it was the intent and the purpose of Jesus that when he poured his mercy on this woman, that she would go and testify about it in such a way that many Samaritans would believe. At this point in the life of Jesus, the half-breeds, half-Jewish, half-religious, half-pagan departures from the true way, who don't believe the whole Bible, who just want what they want when they want it, are now walking with the Savior. Jesus intended that to be so. 
And I don't think I'm reading too much into the scripture when I say when Jesus lavished his grace upon us, he did so so that we would point to him and draw others to hear from him and meet him and experience his saving power. So what if we lived in such a way that we were constantly saying, come and meet Jesus. Come and meet the God-man who has met me in my sin and poured out his love and his mercy and his grace and made all things new. Come and meet my Savior. Come and meet my Lord. Come and meet the King. I have no doubt that Jesus could have built his church any way that he saw fit. He could have made needles fall from the clouds and poke you on the head so that you would look up and then get a laser light in your eyes and it would make you believe and would like implant you with new DNA. I'm sure that Jesus could have done that. And that'd be a great movie if any of you want to write it. The New Left Behind or something. I don't know. But what we see in the New Testament is Jesus coming to sinful sinners, revealing his grace and his mercy and his love and changing them. And then they go out and they testify to what he has done and new people come and meet Jesus where he ministers to them with his grace and his mercy and his love. And they go out and they talk about him and bring new people to meet with him This is how Jesus built his kingdom. This is how, if you're a Christian today, this is how every single one of us are Christians. Somebody told us about the grace and the mercy and the salvation that was poured out in Christ Jesus. And we came and we considered his claims and we considered who he was and we considered what he said and he met us there and he saved us and we went out and we started talking about him. But church, we are called to continue to talk about Jesus. And I know when pastors start talking about mission and start talking about evangelism and start talking about outreach, we all get uncomfortable. We get a little bit squirrely. Like, I can't do that. I can't. I can't. That's fine. But there are so many ways to bring people to the feet of Jesus to experience his grace and his mercy and his truth and his words and his love and his compassion. You can ask people if you can talk about what Christ did in your life. You can ask someone if they'll study the Bible with you. We have a class right now at 9.15 on Sunday mornings teaching us how to study the Bible and how to invite others to study it with us. You can bring somebody to this gathering because every week we're going to talk about Jesus. You can start a gathering in your home just to talk about Jesus. You can bring people to this marriage event that we're going to have because we're going to bring people to the feet of Jesus. You can host it in your home. I'll even pay the fee if I have to because we're going to bring people to the feet of Jesus. There are ways whereby we all, by the power of the Spirit, are enabled to bring people to the feet of Jesus.
I think the real question for us is do we really want to? Or do we want to hide behind being busy, having three kids, having lots of activities, working a lot, commuting a lot, spending too much time in our car, spending too much time on the road, not really having the money to open our homes? We can hide behind all that stuff. But in reality, the question is, are we willing to take up the heart of Jesus such that we will seek that woman and that man and point them to the grace of the Lord? And so that leads to the second part of this story. Notice what Jesus says, verse 27. They, the disciples came back and marveled that Jesus was talking to the woman. So the woman went away. In verse 31, remember the disciples had been out to get food. And so in verse 31, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat. Now listen to verse 32. He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, did someone else bring him some food? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. If you write in your Bible, underline, highlight, I would encourage you to highlight that right there. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you hear what Jesus is saying there? I find enrichment and nourishment and joy and satisfaction not in eating bread, but in doing the work that the Father sent me to do. And so I was spiritually and metaphorically eating when I shared who I was with that woman by the well. Jesus is saying, I was, I, was, I was delighting in the purpose that God had for me. I was building the kingdom that God would have me to build in such a way that it fills my soul. So you all know hunger pangs, right? The malnutritious, malnourished people that we are here in Hendersonville. I could preach until we all have some hunger pangs, but I'm going to stop because we have children down the hall. But Jesus is saying, I find energy and I find joy and I find delight and I find power in doing what my Father sent me to do. And I think he expected them to say, but that's just for you. So in verse 35, he applies it straight at their hearts. Do you not say... There are, four, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which... For which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus says to his disciples, look up and look out. And I challenge you to see a field that's ready to be harvested. 
See a field that's ready to bear the fruit of salvation and of people meeting Christ and being forever changed. People just like this woman. So I challenge you, walk out those double doors and then the next set of double doors into a parking lot and before you get in your car, spin around in a complete circle and note this, there are 1,000 families within one square mile of where you stand when you do that. And if you're like me, we look out over that field and we say, Yeah, but everybody's been to one of the big churches and everybody got baptized somewhere and everybody's professed faith in Jesus. Everybody has a church experience and and everybody, I've said it all, right? Jesus says, look out and see a field that's ready to be harvested. He's challenging us to believe that he, what he did for this Samaritan woman, he intends to do over and over and over again. He's challenging you. It's like middle school truth or dare with Jesus. If you don't know what that is, just forget I said that, okay? But those of you who do, and then this is something that I find great encouragement in. Jesus is telling his disciples that the fields are white for harvest because someone else has prepared them. So perhaps, perhaps when we look around, the fields aren't white for harvest. But if they're not, it would be the will of the Lord that we would be the ones to go and prepare them. And we prepare the fields for harvest by sowing the seeds of the gospel of Jesus. I mean, do you see this here? This is a story of a great salvation. But then Jesus takes what he did for this woman and he looks right at his disciples and he says, this is what I was sent to do and this is what you are sent to do and this is what God has for us. I want all of us to long to be people who know Christ, who know his word, who know his salvation, who know the forgiveness of sins, who know reconciliation to God, who know wholeness, who know healing, and who are committed to helping others enter into the same. So I love that our church loves the word. I love that our theology is robust. I love that we go deep. I love that we think deeply about the scripture. I love that we sing joyfully. I love that we pray boldly, but I also want us to go earnestly. I want us to go and see that the Jesus who saved us intended us to run back to town and say, I found the Christ. I found the one who knew everything that I had done and he still talked to me and he still offered everlasting life and he still offered streams of living water and he still offered satisfaction and he offered it to me, to me. And I know I'm screaming and yelling and it's okay. Maybe. This is what I want us to get from this passage. I'm going to conclude with this. So this little bit 
about true worshipers worshiping in spirit and truth. It's a little bit that I've just scratched the surface of, verses 16 through 26. What Jesus is saying is that I'm bringing an hour, a time, a period, a change where you don't have to go to the right place to worship God. You don't have to be at the right place at the right time to worship God. You don't have to be of the right ethnicity or belong to the right nation, but rather, you have to know the Savior. You have to know the Christ because He makes us worshipers in spirit and in truth. Therefore, Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. And so with that comes our invitation today. Jesus says, I who speak to you through this passage, I'm your hope, I'm your savior, I'm your Christ.